Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, Andrew is uh, is joining me today. Yes, that's right. And I guess we have some news about your latest uh, efforts that you've been putting in for a trail race. Yeah, I uh, this past Saturday, which was the the twenty first, uh, I ran my first technically ultra distance race at uh, Chase a Coyote, which is a local race in Mono, Ontario, close to Orangeville, but an hour out of Toronto. Um, and, uh, this was kind of a race that was a little bit on a lark because, uh, a lot of the folks that I've been doing my one weekly trail run with the, the Solomon group, they were racing and, uh, um, I figured I'd be doing some mileage for the marathon later, later this fall. And, uh, I figured I'd at least have the, the metabolic fitness for, a for a long race. So I, uh, I signed up for it a little while back and, uh, um, really been training mostly road, but, uh, but uh, keeping in the once a week uh, trail run and uh, no, no real expectations for the race. Uh, just went into it hoping to have fun, but uh, it worked out better than that. What I love is how you uh, describe doing a 50 kilometer trail race on a lark. So I think you've, you've graduated to another level of endurance if, if a 50k <laughs> race is just, just something you decide to do. Yeah. Well, you know what, Andrew, I think, there's um that sort of state where you just always train and you know my even when i'm not training for any race specifically i you know just to keep my my head healthy <laughs> i usually will put in you know 8 hours or so uh, a week of training and so that's it's a nice thing to do because then you can kind of you know you can decide to do uh, a fairly long event and not not need a massive ramp up to it in order to be able to at least you know show up and finish. And I actually had a very similar discussion with, with my coach, Alex Vanderlinden recently, just because compared to my first Ironman, the lead up to Maryland, which is actually this coming Saturday, the 28th, um, it's been, it's been a lot, a lot more just casual. I would say there's, there haven't been quite the, the volume of runs and, his point when I asked about that was just that like the base fitness is there. I've done the the hard work over the last year and a half to get to get my body into this shape, and it's um, it's something you can't not really cruise on it, but it just gives you that little bit of extra preparation, and um, your body is essentially in that ready state already. Yeah, there's a lot to be um, there's a lot to be said for that. I think I, I see the effect in myself and also in in folks who've kind of are you know lifelong athletes who've uh, who've always been doing something or other their their ability to then you know ratchet up the either the intensity for a short fast event or or the duration for something a little bit longer is uh, is there that you don't you know yeah you don't need that massive rep so a completely unplanned aside here which seems to be something we're increasingly good at <laughs> um, but uh, one thing I've heard about these, just the lifelong athletes, is basically your muscles are adapting to the the constant need for oxygen. So your your blood vessels, um, you get this increased capillarization, which allows you to deliver more oxygen to the muscles. So mm -hmm. this is why a lot of Ironman athletes, at least anecdotally, I've heard, um, this is why they peak in their 30s because they've got that additional time to develop those capillaries, where their muscles are basically just screaming for oxygen all the time. 
So this is the adaptation that they get, and that's why um, some of the short course people peak in their twenties, and then long courses in their thirties or even late thirties for a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely, that's the case. Um, you need to accumulate a certain amount of you know time under stress in order to get there. It's the same thing with marathoners, right? The top marathoners are all people in, mm -hmm. are all you know men and women in their thirties. Um, whereas the, the, the younger folks tend to do better in the short stuff. Yeah. Because your VO2 max begins to decline for males roughly in your mid thirties, but you're, you know, you make up for it in, uh, you know, in, um, uh, motor efficiency and things like that. All right. So now that we've gone completely off the rails, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's tie back into your, your race report here and, and we'll talk about your run. Yeah, uh, sounds great. So um, I'm not going to spend too much time doing a formal race report because I, I, um, I don't know that there's a ton of value there. What I'd rather do is um, tie in my experience uh, here with some of the things that we've talked about in the past. Um, and specifically, I'll refer back to two episodes, the first being the, you know, the general one we did, you and I, Andrew, about trail running, and we'll link it in the show notes. And then the Perhaps more importantly, the um, the chat we had with Steve Palladino about uh, the stride power meter and using that to uh, structure your training and your racing. So um, the race uh, the race is actually incredibly well organized. This was my first trail race in something like ten years. I mean, I'm not really a trail runner, trail racer, let's say, and so um, I was super well pleased with how well it was organized for a smaller local race. Um, the 50K had about 50 participants. I think, well, the 25 and the 12 were much bigger, but uh, still overall, I, I can't imagine that race was more than, you know, 300 or 300 athletes at most. Um, and, uh, you know, everything was done incredibly well. Like these guys did put on a stellar, stellar job. And I'm usually fairly critical of race directors, mostly because I've never had to direct a race. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I sometimes a little bit harsh on them, but these guys did so well. Um, aid stations were really, um, really well stocked and people were super friendly. Um, but most importantly, I think for me, because I get race brain, um, when I'm working hard and, uh, I can't think about anything other than just, you know, not stopping. So uh, the fact that this trail race was so well marked was a really big deal. Um, I've been to road races that have had, you know, worse markings than this. And obviously on a trail in a provincial park, which this was, there were lots of opportunities to go off the road and there was not any spot anywhere that was not where the direction to go was unclear. So I'm, uh, I'm super grateful for that. Um, yeah, so the race, the race went fairly well. I, um, we talked a little bit about this offline, Andrew, but, uh, I am much more of a time trialer than a racer. Um, <laughs> and that's an important distinction I think to make, uh, in that, I, I come in with, uh, you know, kind of a pacing strategy, whatever that happens to be. And I'll talk about it, talk about mine for this race. And then I try to do my best to stick to that plan. And then depending on how long the race is and how um, mentally prepared I am to uh, kick the crap out of myself, um, then I'll, you know, quote unquote, switch from a steady state racing or pacing strategy to one of trying to compete with, with others in the field. Um, I find for long races, especially now with, you know, the stress of having kids, uh, my, my capacity for, um, for racing other people and for really suffering for long periods of time is diminished. So I'm, I've become much more of a time trialer in my dad years than, than I have been a racer. Um, but I think in a long event like this, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's interesting that, um, 
well, you make that comparison just with with being a parent and and having that uh, the capacity to race and just how that's changed over time and the psychology of it. So um, that might be worth digging into in another episode. Actually, the psychology of racing. I'm sure there's been a lot of research and studies about that. So. Absolutely. And they're different. I mean, people have different strengths, um, you know, mental strengths in this case. Uh, some people really are competitors and they they are pushed to do really, you know, their utmost work when they're competing with their peers. Um, and then there are other people who, uh, you know, can even become uh, demoralized or, or you know, kind of shy away from that competition and they'd rather do their own thing. So there's a there's a spectrum. And I kind of fall on that. I'd rather do my own thing side of that spectrum until again until a certain point so in a race i usually give myself a target saying like this race doesn't start until kilometer x so in this in this context it was because the field was so small and I actually had a really good idea of where i was the whole time um i, I told myself that you know before kilometer like 42 45 i'm not racing this thing i'm gonna stick to my plan and and uh, do what i can with that and try not to deviate. And I think that's where so many long distance athletes fall down as they get sucked into this competition and don't have that full understanding of what they're capable of in long distance stuff. So the, the really successful long distance racers like uh, Scott Cooper, for example, who we talked to a few episodes back, he's able to pace and understand his body a little bit more. But I think there's a lot of athletes out there, especially the ones just getting into the endurance, who will get sucked into that competitive mindset and just completely blow themselves up. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, there was, there's, there's no better place to find that than, uh, than long course racing. So Ironman racing, you see a lot of people walking that marathon. Um, so that could, I mean, look, those could be pacing mistakes or those could be, you know, lack of training. You never know, really. Um, but a 50K trail or anything longer is, a, is another excellent opportunity. There was a lot of walking. Um, luckily, not, not me, but other people on this race. And that was just... I think a lack of a lack of um, maybe maybe precise pacing. So um, pacing for trail races because my I, I totally lack experience in in trail racing myself, um, but I have an understanding of sort of how they work. Um, the classic pace strategy that I've used over time has been well pace right. So your your minutes per kilometer for us metric folks, minutes per mile for the imperial guys and girls. Um, but obviously that goes way out the window in a trail race because, um, and we talked about this in that trail running episode, but because the trains varied, so you get a lot of, uh, elevation changes that are, you know, sometimes, you know, short, sometimes long, steep, uh, not steep. There are obstacles to go over like rocks and roots. And, uh, the surface isn't always, um, you know, super, uh, super smooth or even, right. There's a lot of quite a bit of sand actually in this race. Although it wasn't very deep, so um, pace for um, intensity measurement and and uh, you know control is not useful at all in a trail environment. So in the past, I've used um, heart rate when I've been doing my training outdoors on trails. I've used heart rate to kind of give myself a cap, especially if, if I'm trying to do a really long uh, training bout or race. Um, but but what happened here, and I, I, I don't know exactly if it was a, an equipment uh, screw up or if it was just um, really my own physiology, but my heart rate was super high right off the bat, like super high for me. Um, and so, you know, I gave it about 10, 15 minutes, but I knew, I realized I wasn't going to come down. I mean, I had a little bit of caffeine before the race, which obviously affects heart rate. And then the race begins with an uphill, although it's not that dramatic. But um, even after the climb, my heart rate never settled. And uh, it was so high that I stopped paying attention to it because my RPE was not, and RPE is rate of perceived exertion. My 
perceived exertion did not align with my with my heart rate. So at that point, I decided that you know maybe heart rate wasn't going to be the way that I'm going to pace this thing, and then I switched to using the um, the stride power meter. So I want to touch on something that that's actually quite interesting and that happened to me and may have afflicted you as well. But um, <clears throat> I was out for a run the other day, and I noticed the last couple of runs I was getting this foot pod. Uh, battery low signal and I hadn't really paid attention to it and I had a uh, an alert set up on my watch so that when I was running in my target pace it was fine and then anytime I would go outside that it would buzz at me so I was running along and the first part of the run was fine and then <clears throat> just at the point where you start to get tired in a run so it was like an hour run I was targeting between I think a 440 and a 520 pace and okay. uh, it the, the pace started to go up as in slower um, so it was showing like 535 and I was thinking I'm still if anything I'm pushing harder this isn't fatigue and then it it drifted upwards just outside of the range that I wanted to for a little while and I, you could easily fall into the trap if you're just paying attention to this and not listening to your body <clears throat> that you could be pushing too hard and because you believe that the the pace or the power is correct you might be getting into this trap where all of a sudden you're relying on something that's not functioning properly. Um, so by the end of this run, it was showing like an 830 per kilometer pace. So that one was obviously wrong. But um, yep. the yeah, initially when it was off by like 15, 20, 30 seconds per kilometer, that's a really dangerous zone where you have to listen to your body as well. Um, so maybe something similar was happening with your heart rate there where the heart rate monitor wasn't really picking it up properly. Absolutely. And uh, so you picked up on a, on a few things that I want to touch on. And I, I promise I'll try not to go completely off the rails <laughs> here. Um, so the first thing is low battery issues with uh, with sensors. Um, very common problem that they'll start giving you really poor data. I don't understand the mechanics. Uh, just anecdotally, this has happened with heart rate monitors for me and for some of the folks that I work with. Um, if you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, your heart rate monitors all of a sudden showing a really high value, like an unrealistically high value, change the battery and it goes back to behaving itself. Um, and I was using the strap for the record rather than um, optical heart rate, which for me, I don't know, my wrists are oddly shaped and uh, optical heart rates hit, and, hit, or, hit or miss. Um, usually it's pretty good, but I would never trust it for a race. So I was wearing a strap, but the strap was giving me kind of silly numbers. Um, so yeah, well you, and then the second thing you mentioned was was calibrating... Uh, to your rate of perceived exertion or how you feel. And that is super important. Um, now, this is kind of like a very complicated multivariate problem, right? Because um, you have you have sensors that may or may not be telling the truth, right? Um, and then you have, you know, your perception of effort, which, of course, changes with intensity, absolutely, which is what it's supposed to be used to, you know, uh, control, but also over time, right? So as you become fatigued or dehydrated or, um, you know, or, or hungry, or glycogen depleted, RPE will change, obviously. Um, and it's just trying to signal what your body's sort of feeling at the moment. Um, so RPE is not an immensely reliable metric either, unless you're incredibly well calibrated. Um, and uh, so obviously, and obviously things like stimulants will affect both heart rate and RPE because caffeine, you know, it's, it's main function is to, in my, in my opinion, anyways, to reduce that perception of effort. Uh, that's its main utility in, in, in training, um, or racing. Uh, so yeah, it's a complicated problem, but you're absolutely right that you can't just rely on your gadgets. Um, so it's good to have a plan B. 
right? And uh, in this case, the plan B for me was the Stride. Now, um, I've been running with Stride for probably two or two and a half years now, but I've <laughs> I've been in a very, very long data collection phase. Andrew, I haven't really done too much <laughs> with the numbers. I've just been looking at them after the fact. But since our chat with, uh, with Steve uh, a few weeks ago, um, I've been well paying more attention to those numbers and I've actually you know uh, figured out what my critical power is uh, running. And uh, based on that, once my heart rate pacing strategy went out the window in the first, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes, the, uh, the plan was then to, to use the stride for pacing. And so then the plan there was on uphills, I'm not going above my critical power, um, which for me is 355 watts. So uh, based on that, I was, uh, was going to say I'm not climbing above critical power. So I don't care how short the hill or how steep the hill is or how short it is. If I'm hitting any, you know, close to my critical power, I'm going to slow down or I'm going to walk. Because there were definitely some hills there that I could not run slower, slow enough to keep that number below, uh, below that critical power. So there was definitely some some targeted walking, and early on there was uh, I was in the top five, and there were um, the guys I was running with. They would leave, they would you know just pull away from me on the hills, um, and I knew that probably I would see them again later. But uh, that was <laughs> that was the way that I was using power to pace. And then when I was on flats, I was running sort of what my anywhere between my kind of my easy pace and my long run pace, um, which was you know around two seventy to three hundred watts. And uh, especially if I was trying to recover from a hard, harder hill effort, I would kind of keep it at the lower end of the rate of that range. And if I was feeling pretty good, kind of in the middle or upper end of that range. And uh, I was actually able to keep the power there until probably the last um, seven, five or seven kilometers when it really took a little bit of a nosedive. So one thing I want to touch on there is uh, what you mentioned about climbing hills, because I've um, just in my trail running experience around Cochrane here, I've been... I've gone up some hills and and some steep uh, inclines that basically my heart rate was pegged at 165, which is kind of, you know, my 10K kind of heart rate. Your threshold um, kind of heart rate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's been pegged at that, even though I've just been walking. Um, so really, yeah, if you're if you're putting in that kind of effort, you're just going to burn yourself out. Um, I don't love the term, but like burning a match is the the analogy that a lot of people use for cycling. So the same kind of thing could happen if you try and push yourself up a hill. And again, egos don't win races. So if, you, if you're just getting out there with the opinion that I'm not going to walk at any point, um, you could be setting yourself up for failure there. Yeah, 100%. Because, um, you know, if physiologically, what happens, I think there's a psychological and a physiological component. But physiologically, what happens is you anytime you approach threshold, and certainly when you exceed it, you're essentially burning only glycogen for fuel, the fat contribution is drops to, you know, virtually nothing. Um, so then you are depleting that that precious resource. And if your race is long, let's say longer than 90 minutes, then then uh, glycogen depletion becomes a factor. Um, then there's also um, considerations like what your ability to generate power anaerobically is, and that's uh, um, you know what your what your glycolytic max rate is. And for somebody who does have a fairly high glycolytic metabolism, they can actually afford to and to use the same term you used, they can afford to burn more matches because they are first of all able to generate more power without the presence of oxygen, so above threshold. Um, I mean, the mix, there, there's still a lot of aerobic contribution above threshold, but 
anyway, um, let's just leave that aside. We've, we've covered that enough, I think. Um, but they're able to tolerate that effort um, more frequently and for longer durations. And they bounce back from it faster. But if you're one of those athletes, let's say you've been training for an Ironman and you've been doing a lot of sub-threshold work, which probably you should have been doing, um, then and you're, you know, your glycolytic metabolism maybe is underdeveloped, which is a good thing for, for long course athletes, then anytime you go above threshold, you can only hang out there for very, very short periods of time. And your recovery from that effort takes a long time, which means that for, for people who are, you know, who are those fat adapted athletes, uh, or even for people who are fat adapted, not from, you know, avoiding carbohydrates, but from doing a lot of low intensity training, um, operating in any for any duration above um, above threshold, especially in a long race, is a very dangerous thing to do. All right. So aside number two, <laughs> let's let's try and steer back onto uh, to topic here. Uh, <clears throat> so you were talking about pacing with stride. Um, one question I actually have about that is <clears throat> when you're dealing with varied terrain, like if you're climbing rocks or something like that, did you find that it was a good correlation to RPE or to your actual effort um, just in terms of being able to capture that power? Uh, yes, generally. So if I was running, it was quite accurate. Um, if the terrain was such that I was walking, then I wouldn't, I wasn't looking at it. So there's this, so the, um, uh, Chase a Coyote 50 was two loops of 25. That was the way they do it. Um, and then on each loop there were, uh, there was one big climb, a bunch of little climbs, and then one fairly long climb with a staircase in the middle of it. They called it 64 steps to ruin, I think. Um, so, you know, six, there were 64 steps on this, on this particular climb. So when I was, I, I, I never had any intention of running those stairs. I don't think anyone runs those stairs. Um, but when I was walking up the stairs, for example, I wasn't looking at power, right? Cause that's just, it's not going to give you, I mean, even if it gives you, you, you know, quote unquote power, it's designed to give you power for when you're running. So I'm sure the algorithms um, don't really work that well when you're walking. I actually, you know what, to be honest, I don't know, but I wasn't paying attention to it. Um, so anytime I think that you're actually legitimately running, um, you will get reasonable numbers. And I remember Steve saying, again, the Steve Palladino saying that so long as the grade isn't ridiculous, and I think he threw out a number of like, I can't remember, like 12 or 15% grade. So as long as it's not, you know, super up, then you're, uh, you're probably going to be uh, fine with the power numbers. And if your grade is like 15% or more, there's a very good chance you're walking that thing anyway. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, yes, it was, it was, uh, it was quite accurate. And the nice thing about stride is um, because of its, you know, accurate uh, grade detection, and that's how it calculates power. That's one of the inputs it takes. Um, you know, there, there'd be areas that would, look like they were flats, but they clearly weren't. They were false flats. Um, and so, you know, I'd be looking at my at my pace and my power. My power is high. My pace is, you know, whatever it is. And then I'm like, okay, this must be a little bit of a false flat. And that then, then you know, that started to fall, fall into place. And, you know, pacing those areas, if you were just using pace again, which I know I said in the beginning wasn't useful for trail running at all, but um, false flats are another place where stride really makes a difference because, you you know, it can really tell you that this isn't really flat. You've got maybe a half percent or a one percent grade, which, um, you know, in the scheme of things, especially if it's a long enough section, makes a difference. Yeah, and that's just enough to throw off, uh, I guess, your proprioception and just your your perceived pace or what you'd feel comfortable running on a flat. So yeah. you, you might be putting in that extra effort that you don't need to. For sure. Because a lot of the perception, you're absolutely right, a lot of the perception of, of climbing or descending is visual. It's like you can, you know, this looks like a hill, so I'm going to be prepared to work harder or 
you know, not prepared to work harder, but I know that I'm climbing a hill. Whereas if it's quite flat, then then you don't have necessarily those those visual cues that it is a hill. So looking back on the race, do you think you paced it properly? Did you have any issues near the end or what was your general perception of everything? Oh, I think, um, uh, you know, under the circumstances and given my lack of experience, I think that I did pace it correctly. My uh, They gave us lap splits and I was, um, my total time was like 446. And the difference between lap one and lap two, I believe, was nine minutes. So positive split. So there's the, the race director was saying about was talking about cutoff times when he when he was doing his spiel, and uh, he was saying that you know after lap one we'll cut you off at this time, and you really even if you're really that close, you probably won't make the second cutoff because nobody negative splits this race, um, which makes sense for a fifty k. <laughs> so a nine nine minute positive split over 50, fifty kilometers, or really nearly you know uh, five hours of running, I was really happy with. Yeah, congratulations. And I can't remember if we mentioned, but your overall position in the race, how did you make out? Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I did forget to mention that. that was, <laughs> I came in second overall, which was um, super exciting for me. Now I will, uh, you know, in this, you know, a, a medal is a medal. Um, but the guy that won, <laughs> so my time was 446 and his time was 353. So he beat me by almost an hour. And in years past, the, you know, the, like the fast kids, they were all kind of in that, you know, high threes are really fast, but then the podium would be like low fours. So in, you know, I just compared my time to last year's and I would have been maybe sixth. Um, so it wouldn't have been good enough for a second. Uh, but when you look at the top three, all you see is the <laughs> first, second, and third. You're not necessarily looking at the time that much. So that extra hour of effort that he put in, that uh, that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> no, he didn't. But they they were they were actually thought that he might have cut the course, which he didn't, because I saw this guy run and he was legit like super fast. Um, <laughs> but uh, he so yeah, so he he crushed me. But it was uh, it was my first time ever um, hitting an overall podium, which is really you know kind of fun uh and the best part of it was uh from the last aid station which is about 2k from the finish they had um they had guys on mountain bikes for the top three male female and so being led in by a mountain bike was a pretty cool feeling like i've never had that happen before and that was really fun because it was you know it was just like like yeah you're you know you're really close you're you're second um you're this this and that you know you're doing great and that was like that was a super super fun uh, experience, um, and something probably the, you know, honestly, the highlight of my race was the <laughs> fact that, that I got let in by a bike. Cause that's kind of like, you know, you feel like you've made it at that point. Maybe next time you're in that position, you can use it as a carrot and try and pass the mountain biker and see if you can manage that. Yeah. This, these last 2k were a pretty good downhill, like not steep, but you know, fun to run. Um, so, I mean, him coasting, he was going much, much faster than me. <laughs> he had to, he had to just slam on the brakes quite a bit just to, uh, just to stay with him. <laughs> So that was not an option. Um, so yeah, so the the getting back to pacing, the pacing I think went pretty well. Like I said, only in the last, like it really only started to suck for me in the last 5K. Um, there was a section uh, on this race called the Roots of All Evil. And it's, it's it starts with a bit of a climb. And then it's about another, I can't remember, three or 4K. But it's an area where there are roots everywhere, right? Which is, you know, part of the fun of trail racing. And on lap one, it was a super fun section. And on lap two, it was not a fun section at all because I couldn't lift my feet anymore to clear the roots. <laughs> and I ate it, I think, like three or four times on that section. And there was a lot of, you know, I think I scared some people because there was, there was a lot of cursing. <laughs> um, there's this one point where I uh, was, was like kilometer 47 or something. And I, I, you know, I kicked a root and I went down and I lost my sunglasses in the bush. Oh, no. and I just kind of, I laid there for a few seconds. I wasn't hurt, 
but I, I kind of questioned my desire to get up and keep going at that point, just because <laughs> I, it was it was that part of the race where you know I don't I don't really want to run anymore. I'm I'm kind of done run, running, and it feels nice to lie down for a little while. Well, I think that's what really separates the successful athletes from the less successful ones. Even if you've got the same uh, the physiological performance level, yeah, just the ability to psychologically push yourself like that. I remember talking to Cody Beals after he did his. Uh, it was the Chattanooga Ironman win. And he yep. said he felt terrible getting off the bike. And it was no swim. So he had literally just done the bike. And he said it was the lowest point of the race for him was getting off the bike and starting to run. And then he ran like a 246 marathon. So yeah amazing <laughs> yeah so you got to push yourself through those those low periods and you know the fact that you got back up and presumably found your sunglasses uh and continued running that's that's this that's that's a win for you right there oh for sure and I, I mean it was never like it was never like a true option to not get up but it was i, I took those few seconds when i was lying in the dirt and there's nobody around me because there's part, <laughs> parts of the race where you're pretty much alone um and it was like uh, i don't know that i want to get up but then you know obviously you do and plus i knew i was second at that point so i was like okay i gotta i gotta i gotta finish this thing <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so, you can't let a podium spot slip through no, your fingers like that no by taking a little a little nap in the dirt and not the you know not dying <laughs> not a dirt nap yeah <laughs> um but you listen you you mentioned a really good point about about the psychology and that's something that's worth talking about um and so this is in a especially in a long event when you do get the opportunity to really kind of be with your own mind for long periods of time um the psych psychology plays a really big role. Um, and so everyone uh, has their own coping strategies for these, these kind of races. But, um, I want to talk a little bit about what I try and do, um, because, you know, it might be useful for, for other people. And then you can tell me if that's something that you do as well. But, uh, one thing for me, um, is that the longer, and this, I think actually this probably applies to everybody, but the longer you can stave off that negative, that dark place, the better you're going to be. So my strategy, my mental strategy going into any race is don't let that happen for as long as humanly possible. So that stay positive for as long as possible. Um, because I know I, and you know, this is what I was talking about with the fact that I have kids and I'm kind of mentally not as, I, I don't, I don't have not as resilient as I have been in the past. So I can only tolerate a little bit of that suckiness. I try to stave it off for as long as possible. So uh, one of the things that I do is I, um, anytime I see anybody, um, I'll talk to them. So volunteers or, or people at aid stations or fellow racers, even if it's just like, Hey, great job, keep going. Um, and, uh, that makes a huge difference. Um, for the first half, actually, I ran with my friend, Andrew Hale, who, uh, who was my ride up. Um, and we were, we were working really well together. Like he was, um, roughly running my pace, you know, he would, crush me on the down on the uphills and I would pass him on the downhills because he was nursing a sore quad. Um, but we ran together for 25k. We ran into transition basically side by side. Um, and so we chatted the whole time, which was awesome. Um, and then on the back on, and then I passed him out of transition and then I didn't see him again until um, the end. But uh, uh, because I think he had like a wash and break or something, but, um, that, that was a lot harder. So then I, I talked to myself a lot <laughs> when there was nobody else around with more like, you know, positive messaging, but out loud, not just in my own head, just like, you know, I probably sounded like a crazy person cause I was covered in mud by then too. Um, <laughs> and then we started, and then I, we, I started passing, um, uh, 25 K runners cause they started way behind us. And so then this like two word exchanges with all of them really made a huge difference too. 
Um, so that really, really does help, uh, you know, saying like, good job. Cause then even if they don't say, you know, if they don't say anything to you, that's fine. But sometimes they'll say, oh, you're doing the 50, you're doing great. Congratulations. So that, you know, a little bit of external encouragement was good. Um, so that I find really, really works well for me in, in tough races. So adding, adding my two cents and my own strategy there, um, Definitely, I think talking to people helps, but I find that I subconsciously internalize a lot. Um, <clears throat> so I don't necessarily talk to people, but I'll try my best to smile and to acknowledge people and nod at them. Um, and I find that you get that nod back and it's like, yeah, we're both in a painful place, but it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it. And, yeah. and that kind of thing, that acknowledgement, I find is what really helps me out. Um, like you said, the putting off those negative thoughts for as long as you can, I don't consciously try and do it, but I just kind of keep it subdued as much as I can. Um, so instead of like actively suppressing those thoughts, I just kind of, um, I don't know. I don't even, I don't even know how you passively suppress something, but I think that's what I try to do. <laughs> but, uh, I find that that works well with, with my psychology. Uh, but the, when you get into that really dark place, what I always find works for me is you just think, can I do the next step at this pace? If the answer is yes, then you do that step. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can do the next 10 steps at that pace, um, then you just try and think of that. But that kind of breaks down when you're starting the marathon thinking, if you're questioning your next 10 <laughs> steps and you've got 42 kilometers to go, um, you're in for a world of pain. But, uh, yeah, I, I just try and For use sure. those mental tricks as often as I can. Like, okay, I'm going to make it to the next aid station or I'm going to hold this pace through this or I'm going to try and hit the 10K split at this pace. Um, so those little goal lines that you set for yourself. And then when you get close, you just extend the goal line um, saying like, okay, I made it this far. I mm -hmm. feel like I can make it to the next aid station. And you just keep, you, you, you break it off into chunks. So it's a classic question of... Um, you know, how do you eat the elephant? Well, one bite at a time. So you just take off the, the big race <laughs> or right. the big the big goal and break it down into a ton of little uh, sub goals that you can give yourself that little positive feeling when you succeed with them. For sure. And that's that sort of compartmentalization is critical for any long course racing. Because because if you're, you know, if you're, uh, let's say, you know, racing an Ironman or something and you're having a bad moment when you're swimming, and then as soon as your mind goes to the fact that you still have 180k to ride and a marathon to run, that's a really bad place to go. So that, you know, you sort of put that stuff in, you know, you try, you practice in, in training. And that's one of the things that, you know, one of the objectives of training is you put that in a little box, you lock it away. You're like, you know, this is the next objective is this. And then this is why process goals are so useful. This is why I think that, um, that, you know, focusing on what you're doing in the moment or what you're going to be doing in the very immediate future is so important. And that was, um, that's one of the things, honestly, that I enjoy the most about long course racing is that I get my brain has something to do, you know, so then I'll, I'll be coming into an aid station. And I know um, one of the one of the tricks and uh, one of the tricks I did for this race was uh, I had. Um, well, this is a nutrition conversation a little bit, but uh, I, I was running with a pack uh, by um, Orange Mud and a small American manufacturer. But they, rather than having a bladder uh, hydration like a typical hydration pack, you actually have 
almost like a bottle cage on your backpack and you can use a, a regular cycling water bottle, which I'm a huge fan of because you can easily mix stuff in it and you can use any bottle, you know, and I hate washing bladders. It's a huge pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So anyway, so I would, and the aid stations in this race were really well spaced out. They were quite close together. So it was really easy to manage nutrition and hydration. And I wrote down the kilometer markings of all the aid stations on my bottles so that I would know when the next one was coming up so I could manage, you know, how much, you know, what do I need to fill my bottle at this station or can I make it to the next one? And so that sort of mental arithmetic was really, really helpful in, you know, making sure that I, my brain had something to do rather than thinking about how much, you know, my legs hurt or how big that blister under my right toe was or, you know, any of that, <laughs> any of those thoughts that were not productive. So, um, so keeping, you know, thinking about like, okay, you know, I've got, you know, this is the aid station. I've got this much more time to go. I had my last, you know, swig of maple syrup at this, you know, kind of roughly at this point. I'm going to take some nutrition at this aid station and I'm going to take a cup of their water, but I'm not going to fill up my bottle because I, I know I can make it to the next one. Or, you know, that was just like a sample of what, what I was thinking about between aid stations. And that was a really, you know, a really smart thing for me to focus on because this is, um, you know, this is an action or an activity that I have a lot of control over. Like, what do I do at this aid station? I have control over that. I don't have control necessarily of how my quads are feeling, but I have control over what I'm going to do at this aid station. Um, it gave me something to think about and, uh, and something to, yeah, to really focus on. Yep. And I think that's um, a military saying something about control, what you can control and accept what you can't. Yep. So, um, Definitely good advice, um, but I also love the fact that you'll run a five-hour trail race that won't clean out a bladder for a a, a hydration pack. <laughs> yeah, no, they're pain in the ass. I, I love this. I, I have to. I, I have no relationship with Orange Mud whatsoever, but I absolutely love their packs. Um, just because you can, you know, it stays put and it's uh, it's got that. Uh, I have the single bottle version, but there are two bottle versions. If it was a, a race with much, uh, you know, with, with eight stations spread out more, I'd probably run with that one. But uh, yeah, it was just so, so easy to do. And then I, I was actually using um, Precision Hydration for the first time in this race. Um, and their product is pretty cool. Um, we can probably talk about it in another episode. But uh, I was I was able to pre-mix, you know, rip open a, a little packet of that stuff, dump it into my bottle as I was running with like, you know, the cap in my teeth or in one of my short pockets, you know, then I could get arrive to the aid station with an empty bottle with some powder at the bottom. I would fill it up from one of their, you know, one of their jugs and then, you know, mix it up and, and, and go. And I could, you know, get a, get a, a full bottle of, uh, of hydration in, you know, like only stopping for about 10 seconds at the aid station or 15 seconds at the aid station. So that was a, it was a, that, that worked out really well. And there's something to be said about training with what you use in a race. So a lot of people rely on the course, but you have no control over that. So if you prepare or have something like the the powder for precision hydration, then you can you can add that to water very easily. And it's not that heavy to take along with you. So you've got <clears throat> excellent control over what you have on course in that in that scenario. Absolutely. And that you're, you're, you're 100% right. And that's why I actually have never tried hydration, uh, precision hydration before. So it was a bit of a, like a flyer and I totally violated that do nothing new on race day rule. <laughs> so that was, that completely went out the window, but I figured that this race was, there was so many new things for me here that, you know, I was just going to 
what's another risk (laughs) yeah and the other thing too like i read the ingredients and it was like okay i've i've had all of these electrolytes before in in these specific like ionic formulations i know what you know none of this stuff upsets my stomach um i had a pretty good idea of what concentration i wanted um and then the sweetener in their powder is just sucrose right which is like which is what i use anyway um which is what like my other hydration nutrition products have so i knew that table sugar sucrose was fine for me. So I was like, I'm pretty sure I can stomach this stuff. And actually it worked really well because um, it was warm ish. It was about 25 degrees, but in the last couple of hours and humid um, and uh, zero issues with, you know, GI uh, or cramping. Um, the only, I, I kind of screwed up my, my, <laughs> that math that I was so proud of, of like, should I fill my water bottle before the next aid station? There were a couple of times that I forgot to do it towards the end of the race and I paid for it. So you know, when I finished, I drank, I think like four, like no joke, four bottles in, the, in like 20 minutes or something because I felt so, <laughs> so parched. Um, but the the product itself worked really well and the system worked well. I, it was just user error on my part by, towards the end. Well, yep. Control what you can. So the, the preparation exactly. is good because yeah. you've got uh, a focused mind when you're doing it before the race, but during the race, anything can happen. Uh, the psychology just completely it, it's super interesting. Uh, a lot of the plans go out the window, but um, yeah, it's it. You never know what your brain's going to encounter. No, I actually I felt like I stuck to the plan fairly well. I was just you know there were a couple of times where I made bad decisions. You know there were some things that I planned for, and other things I was I was just going to you know decide on the fly. And then sometimes when I was making those decisions on the fly, they were not right decisions. But also you know planning is really important, I think. But it's also really important. Um, to have uh, to understand what you're going to do if your plan goes sideways, um, and that uh, if you you know if you encounter an issue, like what your how robust is your plan? What's your what's your contingency? So it's it's good. I find like the sweet spot, at least for me, racing is to have a rough plan, but not you know to just be like to think that okay, I want to drink a bottle every so many minutes, or and then have this much, you know, fin- make sure that I finish my six ounces, six ounces of maple syrup in my pocket in, you know, you know, an hour and a half or two hours, and then I can make that happen. But if it becomes too rigid, then it becomes, I think, too, uh, too prone to, you know, fuck ups. So along, along those lines, um, I actually, my nutrition strategy for my Ironman race it's kind of interesting how it's evolved um, because, and it's not so much what I carry with me, it's but how I carry it. Because I've got um, the Ventum that I'm racing with, so it's got the integrated bottle. Um, so obviously you can't swap that out at aid stations, but you can right. fill it. Right. So I've been going through in my head, like when I did Montremblant, I had a bottle bounce off my bottle cage uh, within the first like 5K. So basically you get to that point, you're like, oh shit, <laughs> what do I do now? Uh, so what I'm thinking for this race, even though I like that concentrated bottle and having like the, the super bottle there, plus getting a whole bunch of water to drink when I need it, um, I'm going to do it the other way around this time where I know that I can get water at aid stations. I know mm-hmm. that every everywhere will have water and water is generally water um but uh getting the specific nutrition i'm looking for is not always possible so i'm going to fill up my larger bottle with the the mixed nutrition um and then have my bottle as kind of the the one that i exchange all the time so um so giving that little bit of flexibility or contingency built into that um even though i'd prefer to do it the other way this is the safer way of doing it and just taking less of a risk on something 
hundred percent. So your so your Venton bottle, which I think was what fourteen hundred milliliters, is that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so that's where you're gonna have enough nutrition and I assume enough sodium to last you the race. Yep, yep. So I'm using F two C for this race, F2C, and yeah. um, yep. So I find it uh, it works well with my gut. I haven't had any issues with uh, with GI distress or flavor fatigue. Right. Um, so I'm going to continue using that. I'll probably do kind of a moderately dense mix, and then just try and top it off with water. Is it the uh, glycodurance that, that you're using? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's so I've cool got product. the. Yeah, and like I find that um, when you mix it initially, you have to mix it a couple hours before you race, mm-hmm. um, because it kind of chunks up and doesn't like it's a super fine powder, so it doesn't necessarily dissolve that easily. Um, but then if you let it sit for an hour or two, then it gets like a really nice mixture. Um, so, or using a little bit of warm water helps. But uh, I, I really like it for races. Like I find that it's not kind of a flavor fatigue um, inducing taste and. Yeah, it's it. So I mean, we'll see. We'll see how I feel at the end of the race if I still have those right. feelings. But, um, but that's kind of the way I'm. I'm approaching nutrition there, just uh, taking any contingencies into account with how I lay out my initial nutrition plan there. So how do you? I think. I mean, I, I think that's the right way to do it. But how are you going to make sure that you you drink all of it or enough of it over the course of the bike? Uh, so that is a good question. It's kind of hard to see how much is left in that bottle. Um, mm-hmm. You can kind of get an idea for how much it's sloshing around, but uh, I've got a timer on my my Garmin that uh, goes off every fifteen minutes to to drink or eat. So I'm just trying to stay to that. And if even if you don't really feel like drinking, then it just it forces you to take that little bit in and keep on top of things. Right. Right. Uh, so the timer I find works well because your your mind gets elsewhere. Oh, for sure. It's just you know making sure that you take like enough, like a big enough sip or a small enough sip. And- yeah. Yeah. Um, so one other point I wanted to bring up about psychology. Um, so turns out, uh, I forgot about this, but you weren't the only one racing this weekend. So our friend Scott Cooper did another trail race. Oh, nice. And, How'd he go? Uh, uh, he won. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's it's annoying how good he is sometimes. Uh, so we'll we'll have to get him on for another chat. But uh, yeah, absolutely. The psychology of it is even for someone who's experienced uh, is is really interesting because this race was at least by his standards it was shorter. It was uh, he said <laughs> this morning. Well, wasn't even a hundred k. But um, uh, anyway, Slacker. that's that's long enough for me. But around the sixty five k mark, um, he was leading the race, and he came around this corner and. It was just getting to the point where his mind was kind of wandering a little bit. And he said he came around this corner and there was a guy who was like maybe 150 kilogram guy uh, naked in uh, just hiking boots. So, <laughs> And the first thought that went through his mind was, is this real? Uh, because he, <laughs> Am I hallucinating? Yeah, it's just one of those things that you see and your mind can't quite put it in place and it just doesn't quite make sense. Uh, so he said he had no idea how to react. So he just didn't make eye contact with this guy, kind of pretended he wasn't there and just ran along. Um, yeah. so he found out after the race <laughs> that part of the, the one loop went through a nudist colony. So <laughs> <laughs> that might've been uh, good yeah. information to know beforehand, just to limit the surprise on, on both people's <laughs> yeah. on both people's ends. Cause I'm sure this guy seeing 300 people run by, uh, and him being out for a naked morning walk, <laughs> Yeah. It was a it was a surprise for everyone. Yeah, talk about a bear sighting, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> In any case, uh, maybe this is a good place to wrap it up for this episode. I think, uh, yeah, we've covered a lot of interesting material here. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add about your race? 
No, I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually like super happy. Usually with, you know, with races, um, if I stick to the plan, that's kind of my, that's where I derive the most amount of, um, uh, satisfaction from. And this was kind of a, a two for Cause I, I think I stuck to my plan as, as loose as it was fairly well, considering it was my first go at the distance. Um, and you know, being let in by that mountain biker, that was, that was a really fun highlight. So yeah, that's, uh, that that that's a good place to wrap it up for sure. Excellent. Well, congratulations once again. That's an awesome performance. Thank you. And guys, just so uh, you have um, an idea of what we're planning, uh, Andrew is going to be, as he mentioned, racing uh, Maryland uh, on Sunday. So if you want to follow along, he'll be you know up to his up to his elbows in Ironman. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the Saturday though. Um, oh, is this it? Is okay. one those, it's one of those odd Saturday races, but uh, yeah, you could be forgiven for thinking it was a Sunday because most of the other ones are. They are. They are. Um, Andrew, anything else that you want to mention? I think we've got a couple other interesting discussions planned. So the Pacing and Racing podcast, we're going to be speaking with them shortly uh, with uh, Stephen and Jenna Sayre. So um, yeah, that's coming up very soon. And We'll make some Kona predictions out of that as well, I think. We're also going to have a, um, um, in the next uh, week or two, we're going to release an episode on uh, nutrition, sort of like the high level stuff of what everyone who's doing endurance sports should be aware. This is uh, something that our listeners have been asking for uh, quite a bit. Um, and this is, I promise I will not be a, uh, uh, a university level biochemistry lecture <laughs> this will be actually you know very practical and uh and useful advice for what to eat how much to eat when to eat it that kind of stuff okay so no course prerequisites going up before no there, there's no there's no required reading list for this one. <laughs> excellent so i'll be able to follow along this time hopefully <laughs> yeah so uh, as always folks thank you very much for listening and tuning in uh, do tell your friends and help us grow and uh, rate us and review us on iTunes when you get a minute thanks everyone 